Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and with me again this week... It's Ted Haycraft. It's Ted Haycraft. I'm we, sitting with Chad Fain. No, I haven't. <laughs> we're, we're only a few seconds in. You're already plugging. Um, today, we are discussing the Brian De Palma film, The Fury, with Sam Irvin. Uh, he was technically a production assistant on this film, but it was his first in a long series of movies that he worked on with De Palma as, a, as a, his assistant, amongst other jack-of-trades that he... Um, but anyway, first, Ted, what did you watch this week? Anything interesting? Uh, well, I, I did watch a, 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 a overlooked, obscured, uh, Paul Schrader film. Which, which one? Adam Resurrected. I saw that on Letterboxd. If you're not following Ted and me on Letterboxd. Uh, 2004. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. William Defoe. That's got a great post. Derek Jacoby. Uh, it's very strange. He, he's a, he is a, a carnival clown circus owner in Berlin during the between the wars but he's Jewish the war op- breaks open and he gets uh, thrown into a concentration camp with his family is this the first one after autofocus it's it's might be it's it is after autofocus for sure but I, it, I'm not sure if it's I remember a, there's a point where I did there's the trail- walkers in there somewhere too okay I there's a point I trailed off with Paul Schrader until you know first reform we well, disappeared the few of these like the walker and this one they all kind of like they got kind of lost in the a, Brett Easton Ellis one with yeah, Lindsay Lohan. The, 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 yeah. So, the uh, canyons. uh, but anyway, it was interesting. Uh, and it's, a, it's, I, I'm going to go back to it cause I'm trying to, I don't know if sure I figured it all out, but the concentration camps are in black and white. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, it, it takes place in the sixties in Israel in a, in a, a asylum for concentration camp, uh, uh, victims there's there's you know, one movie i've been trying to find for a while i think i'm just going to break down and have to rent but a bunch of people have been raving lately to me is blue collar there's an argument oh, yeah blue collar as schrader's best movie and i've never seen it and i must say and i think you'll you'll be happy to hear uh the other thing the other thing i've, I've been spending my time watching uh-huh steven soderbergh the nick? the nick i saw you posted you were the nick how, how? I, mean, I posted it. oh did you I posted a picture, picture of yeah, it yeah, yeah. uh yeah it, oh Soderbergh, he's the man. Hail, all hail Soderbergh. It is his. I, it's his Berlin Alexander plots. God, it's just uh, you know there was like shots in there. I'm just like amazed, and there were scenes I got emotional that I don't think a, it was a scene to be emotional. I mean, as emotional as it was to me, mm-hmm. but it, it just got to me. And uh, uh, his frame, and I, and I know he's 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 holding the camera and he's mm-hmm. editing the thing. And the performances and the music. Oh, the, the music. The score is one of the best. I, I, I've tipped a movie with that score. I mean, it's, not, it's, it's been done before, but the set electronic modern score set in New York 1900s. Cliff Martinez, man, yeah. all the way. So yeah. it, it, the, the craziest thing about the Nick, I remember, is like, you, you know, you take the trope of a hospital show and, you know, Mad Men also did this thing where it found a reason to do a historical, like to, to really deal with a current issue with a historical perspective. The Nick really deals with race in a very intriguing way. Well, yeah, now I'm watching it now. It's like the, the race issue and the, and the pandemic. Uh, I didn't think about the pandemic. Typhoid Mary. How, how far I, are you in? I'm done. That uh, what you think of that? Um, we're not spoiling. Yeah, it. We we should save this for a podcast. I think we do. We we're need not a Soderbergh podcast. Or something. Oh, we've done enough Soderbergh podcast. Oh, he deserves more. The ending. I just wanted to just we, we can't spoil the ending, but that is one hell of an ending. Yeah. Show. Even though you know, I thought well, maybe he could, he could come the other way. No. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, I mentioned this last week because uh, I was still kind of digesting. I've been watching all these Criterion neo noirs, and um, I finally dived into the Robert Mitchum um, uh, 
was it um, um not Sam Spade? Um Oh the the, the Pharaoh by Lovely, the two the two. Pharaoh by Lovely and the Long Oh well, well yeah. And the Big Sleep. Sorry, Long yeah. Goodbye. I was thinking they are but is it one Mike a winner or yes yeah and it's weird because it ends in a giant Uzi scene which seems like I've never really seen any Michael winner movies like I, I have Death Wish movies in the back of my head from like VHS and um, Farewell My Lovely has like some major talent behind it it's John Alonzo pretty fresh off Chinatown Dean Tavalaris is the production designer it's one of Jerry Bruckheimer's first produced movies um, and yet this is the movie that seems to define why, like, uh, Raymond Chandler and the detective genre became such a stereotype for a while and stiffed at people, at least to me in my generation or whenever I came up. Huh. Yeah. I was hoping you would defend it for me. Or no, say, because, well, I'm, I think I'm embarrassed to, to admit, I don't think I've set through both of them, either one all the way through. Okay. Um, they were, one get, one got really bad reviews, one of them. One of them is got decent reviews, if I recall correctly. The Big Sleeve transposes everything into London, yeah. and Candy Clark is in it, and right. so I got excited about that. And like, um, you know, the uh, the is a John who, who did the uh, Hawks did the original Big Sleep, and yeah. notoriously that's the one of the most confusing plots of all time. Well, yeah, it was like it does. It, it's like it does, the plot doesn't matter. It's just that it's just the film is, is the characters and the actors and the and everything that goes on is wonderful. Right. But if you want to, if you're concerned about the plot, it is like what doesn't make sense or something. Um, I need to revisit them. I'll tell you the truth. I well, the, I need to have, revisit the Hawks, but I need to watch these things. So they they were around, and I remember when they were in the theater. And I, you know, I just I don't I know. Mitchell was getting long of the tooth, and uh, one, you know, one of my favorite ones is um, Haw- or Mitchum a few years later, like many years later, he hosted SNL and he did an SNL sketch where he did uh, the voiceover in a detective speak. Yeah, well, yeah, because he's he's a, he's always been associated with film. Nor you go, you go way back in that. You know, out of the past. Is, out of the past, yeah. yeah, yeah. Out of the past, um, I only watched for the first time a few, uh, maybe eight months you ago. You were pretty, hopefully you were so oh, impressed. Blown yeah. away. Yeah. Like, one of the definitive femme fatales. Right. Like, wow. But, yeah, these were like, I, I don't know, I, I, it'd be, I'm sure if you examined it, I think these might have come in the wake of the Agatha Christie films, or there was a, there was a, there were trends, to, the, the, the you know, of doing these things. And I always thought the weird thing was that these, Two, they're two Marlowe films, but I don't think they have any connection to each other. Well, I think, I think the trick of it is, is that um, the first one comes only like two years or a year after, uh, speaking of Marlowe films, after The Long Goodbye. Right, which, well, that's, yeah. That's and Long Goodbye, so... I guess, didn't do well. And, no, and it seems just... such an antithetical movie to that. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, this is I, I'm, I'm sure it was uh, hopping on some trend, some nostalgic trend or something going on at the time. Uh, with that many stars and the, the people involved with it uh, and the studio involved, I'm sure there was something going on that that uh, instigated it. And I guess the second one was done because the first one did, I guess, okay. Or they were going, let's try to dim, but put a different location or something. I don't know. The Michael Winner one um, does have a cool opening and closing shot, uh, mirrored opening and closing shot. But Anyway, on to this episode. Ted, you knew Sam Irvin from the... the well, I met Sam at uh, it was this great little show called Wonderfest in Louisville. It started as a model toy show, but they've incorporated a lot of different things. They bring in uh, you know, people, celebrities and movie makers and, and uh, artists and comic book things. And 
It's a nice little show in Louisville. I recommend it. It's around usually around Memorial Day weekend called Wonderfest. You can obviously look. I Google think it's been it. mentioned on the sh- on here probably. Times. Yeah. And Sam, um, there's this magazine called Little Shop of Horrors, um, and they do basically uh, every issue is devoted uh, to a, a breakdown of one major heart Hammer film horror. But uh, the editor decided to do one on Frankenstein, Frankenstein, the true story, which you, is technically you, you've mentioned this in a past episode. Yeah, too. it's not technically a Hammer film, but Sam is just a unbelievable expert on this film. He in te- took over the entire magazine. He got this more, uh, artist friend of ours, Mark Maddox, to do a, a fold-out cover, and the cover and the entire magazine article got Rondo Awards. That's a, a award they give out for uh, monster kids give out. On the, it's an internet thing, and they do the they do the. Um, celebration the award giving at wonderfest mm-hmm. so sam came and we started talking and he brought up brian de palma so i just immediately leached on to him and said give tell me tell me tell me stories and i had all, just amazing stuff so i was you know and of course i told you about him yeah but he's got is much more to sam than that he was executive producer well we'll talk about this in the we'll podcast. talk about this on you'll the get show. a lot of his credits but look him up he's a uh, very prominent on facebook he'll have, be more than happy to be your friend there's all kinds of stuff to get from him, and he's got wonderful stories, and you're going to hear some of that coming he, up. He will be your friend. He was a very, he was a very nice interview. Very oh, nice it's great. To yeah, to. he's wonderful to hang out with. Yeah. So anyway, onward with this episode. Wonderfest was um, Ted had mentioned knowing you from Wonderfest and was the reason I wanted to do this just because I we've been looking for an excuse to do a De Palma episode for a while right. and um, your story seemed kind of intriguing in that regard <laughs> to say the least to say the least um, yeah yeah Absolutely. so we're let's that, start hold on a second I want to show you if you don't have this you should get it it's a um, it's a entire magazine that I wrote came out last December. A memoir of, of my working on Dress to Kill. And originally it was just going to be an article in the magazine, but I wrote 13,000 words. <laughs> I said, I can cut it down to whatever size you want. And they read it and they said, oh my God, we're going to devote the entire issue to a whole special issue just on that. You're, so you're showing off, uh, what's that, issue four of Boobs and, boobs and Blood? <laughs> boobs and Blood, issue four. And it's, uh, so the whole thing is my memoir of working on it. It's a, it's got 175 photos. It's it's a really cool magazine, and all the profits go to a breast cancer cancer foundation. So it's a good cause. It's not on Amazon. You have to just go to the Boobs and Blood magazine. <laughs> okay. Website, okay. And there's a special, you know, print on demand website that you can order it from. But it's uh. It's definitely worth it if you're a De Palma fan and and uh, and especially that movie. So, okay. So anyway. going back, where are you from originally? I was um, born and raised in Asheville, North Carolina, and went to college at the University of South Carolina. Okay. And I was, you know, majoring in film there at the University of South Carolina, and I was head of the film committee that ran a movie theater on campus. And uh, I decided I was a huge, huge fan of Brian De Palma back then in the 70s. And I loved Fan of the Paradise. I loved Sisters. And I decided that we're going to organize a Brian De Palma Film Festival and show 
Phantom and Sisters and Hi Mom and Greetings and some of his early stuff. And so I booked everything and got it all lined up. And then my dad was in the movie theater business. So I was always, um, you know, getting the trade papers like, you know, Variety and Hollywood Reporter. And in Hollywood Reporter, they had the production charts. And it said that De Palma was in pre-production, early pre-production on Carrie. And it had a phone number (laughs) for the casting office of (laughs) Carrie. So I just called it cold. And they put De Palma on the phone. <laughs> and it was just insane. I mean, of course, that would never happen today. Now, mm-hmm. this particular casting session, unbeknownst to me at the time, was uh, it turned out to be the most iconic, most famous casting session in all history of movies. Because Brian De Palma and George Lucas were sitting together <laughs> at a table reading every kid in town for Star Wars and Carrie. Every actor who came in read a scene from both movies. <laughs> and then they fought over who would get, you know, if they really liked somebody, they would fight over who, who was going to get them for their movie. Mm. And uh, so anyway, they put De Palma on and he was on a break or whatever. And I explained what we were doing. And he said, and they were, you know, in L.A. casting. And he lives, he lived in New York at that time. And he said, you know, I'm kind of broke. I really need some stuff at my apartment in New York. You can give me the airfare from L.A. to South Carolina for the festival, then to New York for the weekend, and then back to L.A., I'll come for the Triangle airfare. And I said, done. And so he came out. Was the college paying for this, or how does this work? Or is this coming out of your pocket? Our, Our film committee, we ran this movie theater 365 days a year, even oh. when it was out. And we had free movies Monday through Thursday, and they were usually art, you know, more artier pictures, foreign films, independent films um, that weren't terribly commercial. And we would um, show them for free. And then on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we would show commercial movies and charge a dollar. And it was a 300 seat theater. And we, you know, because it was cheap and on campus, it was just filled up all the time. Wow. And with money, we were able to fund the free movies and have money left over for special events. And okay. so we had the we had this in our um, in our fund to be able to pay for those t- for the airplane tickets and bring him out. And to put him up in the hotel and the whole deal. Sort of reminds so, me back. That's what kind of we had a sort of sort of a interesting financial setup with our movie series at U of E at my university. Uh-huh. I, back, I guess back in those days, it was just uh, a lot of uni- uh, film campuses uh, did that. You know. Well, yeah. It, and this in the days before you know people didn't have home video. You know, there wasn't anything like that. This was the set. You know, seventy five. So, yeah. um, you know. If you wanted to see a movie, this this retro house that we ran was like the place. It was, you know, the happening place to go. And was it open? Uh, was it open to the public too? Yeah, it was open to the public. But but the public had a, if you were a student, you had priority, and the public had to kind of stand in a line for standby. And like you know, ten minutes before the show, we would start selling tickets to the the general public uh-huh. as well. And uh. But 
you know, and it was 16 millimeter and we would rent from Films Incorporated and Janus. Films, oh, yeah. You know, the, the, those companies, sub distributors that would rent these films to campuses and to, you know, military bases and that kind of thing. And so anyway, we so De Palma comes out. I take him to my film class, the, the one of the film classes that I was taking at the time. And he was drawing storyboards on the chalkboard and um, of, of his latest film that he had done called Obsession that hadn't come out yet and wouldn't come out. This was December of 90 of, of 75 and it didn't come out until like August of 76. So we're many, many, many months before it, it, it even came out. And at that time, it was still under the working title Deja Vu. Oh, OK. And he brought with him a little cassette recorder and popped in a cassette and started to play for us the brand the newly recorded score by bernard oh Herman. wow <laughs> we uh for a past episode had uh paul hirsch on in celebration of his book and he loved telling the story of recording the obsession uh soundtrack yeah. oh paul is so great i i love him so much and he um so and and i have to check the timeline but i'm pretty sh I, no i'm I know that at the time De Palma came out to South Carolina in the early stages of prepping Carrie and playing us this Bernard Herman stuff from, from obsession, he was talking about Bernard Herman was going to be doing Carrie. And of course, as we all know, very sadly, yeah. Herman did the taxi driver score for Scorsese and just hours after the last recording session died. And I think that may have been, if I may have the month wrong, it was definitely 75, but I think it was December-ish 75. So, I mean, when De Palma was there, uh, at, at any rate, when De Palma was there, Bernard Herrmann had not passed away, but very soon after that, he did pass away, um, which was just really tragic. But it's also just incredible to think of a Bernard Herrmann score for Carrie, mm, man, that right. would have been not, not to, uh, dis, you know, Dinaggio in any way, who was, who did an absolutely phenomenal job. And it's hard to imagine Carrie without his score, but at any rate, it was, it was pretty cool to hear this obsession cues, you know, nine months or whatever before it, it opened to the public. And, um, and he was drawing, you know, scenes from Obsession and how the music played into it and stuff. And it was just the coolest thing. And we, he came to some of the screenings and did Q and A's. And, uh, and then on Saturday night, we booked Phantom of the Paradise to be a midnight show. We invited, we told everyone to come in costume and that the best costume would be judged by De Palma and we'd give away prizes and everything. So all 300 seats sold out many 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 people came in costume he did the judging we gave away the prizes and then we start the movie and if you recall the very first shot of phantom of the paradise is the death records logo of the dead bird uh graphic and the dead bird is is rotating around and there's no sound and i race up to the projection booth and go Get, turn on the sound what's going on and the sound bulb in the 60 millimeter projector had burned out. And 
somebody fucked up and did not have any spares in the projection booth. How could you fuck up and not have spares, man? I know, I know. Like, are you kidding me? And it's after midnight on a Saturday night. There's there's no store you can go buy one of these. And we had to refund everybody and send them home. And I thought all the goodwill I've built up with the Palma up to this moment just got flushed down the drain. And But this will tell you, this more than anything will tell you what Brian De Palma's personality is like. He thought it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and in the years following, when I ended up working for him as his assistant and everything, he loved to introduce me to people and tell this story to embarrass me. And that's just the kind of guy he was. He, you know, he, very sardonic and he just, he loved to embarrass me. So <laughs> I was, it, it actually maybe in a weird way made me more memorable or something or gave him, you know, a hook to, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that's what happened there. And that was uh, 75. And then he ended up making Carrie in 76 and and in the fall of 76 obsession came out in august and did very well and got incredible reviews and then carrie came out a couple months later in october and was just huge at the box office huge reviews and of course as you know ended up getting nominated for best actress for sissy spacek and um Best Supporting Actress for Piper Laurie, which was highly unusual for a horror film. And, um, you know, it was the film that propelled him into the big leagues in the way that his colleagues like Scorsese and Coppola and Spielberg and, and all his buddies had had their big breakthrough movie. And, the, and Carrie was the one for De Palma to finally do that. So... Um, on the basis of that, then 20th Century Fox uh, agreed to make the wanted to make the Fury with Brian directing, which at that time you know was considered a big budget uh, studio picture, which was the first time that Brian was making a film that wasn't kind of a you know independent, independently made movie and then sold to a distributor kind of thing. This mm-hmm. was his first big studio uh, project. Um, and he was going to be shooting it in the summer of 77, which was between my junior and senior year. And I now he had given me his home phone number. And so I called him and begged. <laughs> How often did you use this phone number, by the way? Judiciously, I assume? Yeah, I, yeah, I would never call him unless it was just like okay. really. I mean, you know, you yeah. just don't do that. Right. But. Um, but in those days, I mean, you know, there's no email, there's no, there's no other way to contact somebody right. other than the phone or writing them a letter. I mean, I did have his address, but I did call him and called him cold and, you know, at a decent time and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he said, sure, come on up and, and we're going to be shooting in Chicago. And, you know, if you can put yourself up and, you know, come on up and, and work with, work on it. So, um, I, you know, held a gun to my parents' head and got them to to spring for my hotel. And I went up to Chicago and worked on it as, I mean, I was a production assistant 
but kind of his assistant. I mean, you okay. know, he, he, I, I hovered in, in his in his radius and he would have me do things. I want to ask because I've known a lot of um, assistants for uh, directors and um, especially when they're young, like you sound like you were so in awe of us and so excited about this. And, yeah, and totally it, but at the same time, a lot of these assistants I've known as the years go on on have had more love hate relationships with the bigger director after a certain point. I, I was curious more about like you, you still seem to this day still seem to be in on love with or just his personality. Like I, I wonder if you could speak more about because I'm curious curious what De Palma is like personally because he seems smart and sardonic but he also seems like you could be the butt of a joke I would think yeah he you know he he's a he's a tricky personality he um he's very hard to get to know um even spending so much intimate time with him you know over the years and everything you know he, he, he there was still a level that I didn't crack through, you know, and he, um, he's not the, he's not always the warmest person when he's, when he's in a joking mood, it's, it is sarcastic and sardonic and you gotta, you know, you gotta take it. <laughs> you gotta know how to take it. But at the same time, you know, it didn't feel like it didn't, it didn't cross over into that bullying thing. He always had, okay. he always felt like it was, um, it, it was to have fun, maybe at, at your expense, but not in, not in a way that, that was, um, I don't know. You always felt like it was, I mean, Ted, you know how Mark and I, you know, tease each other right. and everything. You know, it was always in a friendly way. Yeah, Mark um, and I do the same thing too. Mark's a, a, a artist. Just a, what's Mark's last name? Mark Maddox, Mark. and he does yeah. uh, covers for Shot Factory sure. DVDs and uh, ma fat, uh, movie magazines. Okay. Fans. He's he won. He's won the Rondo Award for Artist of the Year six times. <laughs> I mean, he just this brilliant artist who does horror magazine covers and Blu-ray covers all the time for Shout Factory and stuff. Anyway. Um, you know, it's just one of those types of sarcastic relationships where you can needle each other. And, and you know, it was hard for me to needle him back. <laughs> okay. Yeah, boss, uh, employee uh, thing going on. But he was, you know, he, he recognized that I was a, you know, rabid, rabid film buff, knew my shit. You know, I had been, you know, studied Hitchcock, I mean, always a fan of Hitchcock and knew I, Hitchcock backwards and forwards. So we could have a conversation about that. And, you know, we knew what, what each other was talking about, you know, even down to the most minute, you know, tiny minutia sort of trivia or whatever. And so he respected me in that way. And, you know, and I was a, an aspiring director. Um, and so he, you know, he, he would, was something of a mentor to a degree most of what i picked up was picking it up on my own by by observing mm. watching just soaking everything up i mean he wasn't taking time out to go now sam this is how you do that you know he wasn't that type of a mentor but he was open to letting me 
in, sit in on meetings. Um, he would, you know, take me to different meetings and things. And um, I, oh, and by the way, on the Fury, I also, in addition to being an assistant, I was an extra in the, um, the uh, old Chicago amusement park scene. Yeah. Chicago, that indoor um, amusement park, the scene where Andrew Stevens goes in with his telekinesis and throbbing veins in his head and makes everything go crazy. You'll see me in almost every shot. <laughs> I watched the uh, uh, location journal and I love the arrows pointing you out in each shot, too. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, um, but also I got an assignment from Cine Fantastique magazine to write a journal on the making of the film. So it allowed me to request and be granted one-on-one -on -one interviews with everybody from Kirk Douglas, John Cassavetes, all the way, you know, to John Williams when he was working on the score. I did a, a quick phone interview with him. You didn't mention I, John Williams in this thing. That 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 is very fascinating to me, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your, your train of thought. Yeah. And, and I went and um, even after we were sh finished shooting, I went to New York where they were editing the film on my Christmas break at the end of 77 and um, and it went to the editing room and met Paul Hirsch and, you know, talked to him. And so it, anyway, it was just, it you know, everything that I learned really about real filmmaking was not what I had learned in film school. Um, I learned about, you know, the thing about film school was really learning about older movies and studying films. But in terms of making films, my education was with with De Palma. And, and he was just great in allowing me the, the access and, and recognizing that I was this sponge, you know, wanting to be in on everything and wanting to know everything. And, and, uh, and, you know, he didn't put up any roadblocks for that. And it was, it was just fantastic in that way. Um, Have you uh, read uh, Julie Salomon's uh, Devil's Candy about Bonfire of the Vanities? Years and years ago. Yeah. There's a good description of him dealing with the DGA apprentice is that it's, it's, I, I wonder if uh, older De Palma is different, but he talks about, because it's, it's union required to do it, but he was just telling them lining up shots and, and just all this stuff. And there was this really great sequence where um, he's talking about, the, it's an overhead camera shot, and he's lining up all the extras to have umbrellas, and one yeah. person doesn't have umbrella. And he turns to the point, he's like, can you name the Hitchcock film I'm riffing on? Yeah. yeah. Hey, can I, I, I want to interrupt, and, and I think uh, before we go more into Martin. the fury... Right. <laughs> uh, uh, I think you, Sam, you should, uh, uh, tell us, go back. Uh, and I think this is incredible. Your fanzine and how, and then, and how you got funded by your parents to go to England. Uh, tell them a little bit about that. Well, oh, and how old you were, were doing this. A horror, a horror fanzine called Bizarre. And it was, um, I worked on it in, when I was in high school, uh, during summer break and I would do one issue a year and they were very com very large issues very comprehensive like mm -hmm. over 100 pages i mean you got them sold across i mean it was a it was really professional looking too right it was like sold across the yeah. country I, I i think i remember seeing those in a catalog somewhere yeah and it, i i got it i they sold it at cinemabilia in new york at larry edmonds did bud plant have them by chance did who bud plant uh, the, that brings a yeah 
Maybe. And then there was a cinema store in London. I forget the name. They were selling it. And I heard from people. I mean, I met, I met William Friedkin. <laughs> so crazy. My dad took me to a theater owners convention um, in 70. When did The Exorcist come out? 74? 73, so, wasn't it? 73, somewhere in there. It was very shortly after The Exorcist. I went to this theater owners convention with my dad and they would give away, they, they would give awards to celebrity, whatever celebrity would say they would come. <laughs> <laughs> so the director of the year was William Friedkin because he, I guess the studio said, you know, you need to go rub elbows with the theater owners and, and this will be good. And it was a pretty cool, you know, they got great people. I mean, that year it was, William Friedkin was the director of the year. Faye Dunaway was the star, female star of the year. Jack Lemmon was the male star of the year. And, you know, so I would go there and they would, you know, you could get autographs, you could talk to them. There was access. And I, and I go up to William Friedkin and I have my little bizarre magazine with my, you know, five-star review of the exorcist in there. And he, he goes, Oh yeah, I got a copy of this at Larry Edmonds. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I, I couldn't believe it. And, and Palma said that he had seen them. Uh, I don't think he bought, bought them, but I think he flipped through at, at Cinemabilia before he met me, you know, and stuff like that. So it was, it was pretty cool. And they, you know, back in those days, uh, those, you know, those cinema store, you know, cinema bookstores were hotbeds. I mean, of, of film buffs, they were just like, you know, you would make a pilgrimage to these places if you went to the, the, the big cities. And and apparently, you know, directors were hanging out there, too. And uh, so it was it was a great entree for me. And I for my grad my high school graduation i convinced my parents to give me as a gift a trip to london's where i so where i could interview <laughs> all my hammer idols like christopher lee and and all those guys so um and so i went there and i had already been corresponding with christopher lee i'd actually done an interview through the mail with him for an earlier issue and so i had written to him and told him i was coming and he said oh when you get here give me a call and i'll take you to lunch well, when I got there, he said, well, I'm working. You're going to have to come to lunch at, at Pinewood Studios. And I go out there and I don't know what he's doing, you know, and it turns out he's filming the man with the golden gun. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and then uh, he had been released for lunch early. So we had lunch at the commissary, and then just as we're finishing, in walks Roger Moore and Britt Eklund and Maude Adams and Guy Hamilton and Hervé Villachez. And Christopher Lee says, well, they've just broken for lunch, so um, we're not going to start shooting again for an hour. Why don't you come with me and I'll give you a tour of the Bond sets? Oh, so I had a private tour of the James Bond sets on with no one else there. It was just completely empty and we're just walking around. And then he asked me to stay the rest of the afternoon and watch them shoot. And, um, and then at the end of the day, he offers me a ride in the studio Rolls Royce limo back to London, which of course I agreed to. And in the back seat is Christopher Lee and Hervé Villachez <laughs> sitting next to each other. Um, 
and I'm in the little fold-down seat facing them, and Herve is 10 sheets to the wind, <laughs> telling us these dirty stories of, of all the prostitutes that he's hired since he's been in London and what he's done to them. <laughs> he has this very, very, uh, you know, definite lisp, and he was using the word pussy quite a bit, but it would come out puffy. Ah, well, okay. Uh, Christopher Lee started to giggle at every time he would say the word puffy. And we just started to laugh and it just was contagious and laugh and laugh and harder and harder. And to the point where we were absolutely hysterical and he was having a great time because he knew, you know, every time he would use puffy or another really raunchy word or something that we would just, just. How old were hurt. you during this? Oh, I was like 17, I guess, something like that. And um yeah i was 74 uh summer of 74 so i was just just about to turn 18 and um but at any rate it was the most hysterical thing ever and for me you know this is this is count dracula you know doubled mm -hmm. over in hysterics it was it was just surreal so and things like that just were continuing to happen the whole trip. I mean, I wanted to interview Diana Rigg because I loved her on the Avengers TV series as Emma Peel. I loved her in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the Bond film. But I really loved her playing Vincent Price's daughter in Theater of Blood. So um, she, you know, her agents weren't playing ball. And so I decided I found out that she was playing and starring in the West End as Liza Doolittle in Pygmalion. So I was like, well, I want to see that anyway. So i but it was sold out, but I figured, well, there's always somebody out in front of the theater selling a ticket that, that somebody couldn't come or whatever. And I went there, sure enough, got one ticket, went in. It was a fantastic seat. It was like fifth row in the orchestra center. And I sit down waiting for the show to begin. And I hear this very familiar laugh right behind me and I turn around and it's fricking Vincent Price and his new wife, Coral Brown, who also starred in theater of blood. And by the way, they were introduced to each other by Diana Rigg. And before I can even open my mouth, Vincent says, Sam, what are you doing here? <laughs> because I was a groupie with him. And had gone to see see his lecture tours and everything many times. I'd been corresponding with him for years. And so he knew me and he knew my magazine and everything. And I, I said, well, and I explained that I was wanting to meet Diana Rigg and I was going to go to the stage door after to see if I could meet her. And he said, well, you're coming backstage with us. And that's what happened. And he took took me backstage and introduced me to Diana. And we all had champagne and it was lovely. And she was put on the spot. And Vincent saying, you know, you're going to have to do an interview with this young man for his fabulous magazine. And she said, OK. <laughs> and then it said, why don't you come back on my matinee day? Because I do a matinee and an evening show. And I just hang out in my dressing room between shows. And that's when we can do the interview. And I did. And it was fantastic. And uh, it was, and so just charmed, weird things like that were happening the whole time. It was, it was unbelievable. You do sound like you were putting yourself into a position to be in the charmed, wonderful things to happen, though. I was making it happen for myself, yes, but still, I mean, my God, the mm. chance 
of Vincent Price being there at that particular moment. I mean, it's just still gives me goosebumps. Mm -hmm. And there was something about Vincent Price because it happened over and over again. Um, years later in New York, my parents came up. I, I was living in New York when I was working for De Palma. My parents came to New York. They stayed at the Wyndham Hotel. I went to pick them up. We were going to go to dinner at the Plaza Hotel in the Oak Room. And we're coming down the elevator and it opens up. Vincent Price and Coral Brown step into the <laughs> and he, And again, he's like, Sam, what are you doing here? <laughs> And I introduce him to my parents and he goes, oh, my God, I'm so nice to meet you. You have such a wonderful son, blah, blah, blah. And and my parents, you know, they're like not stars. They're not particularly starstruck. They go, well, why don't you and your wife come with us to dinner at, at the Oak Room? <laughs> and so um, they said, well, we can't come to dinner, but we'd love to come and have a cocktail. So they came and had drinks with us. And it was just, you know, again, it's like you could not. I mean, yeah, I make things happen. But th that was just freaking crazy. It was just insane. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> it, you know, that was the magazine. And once I um, when I started going to college, I got really busy and in, in working in the summers and stuff. So I really didn't have time to do the magazine. And then in meeting De Palma, I sort of, you know, my focus kind of shifted where I really wanted to be spending my summer working on, you know, films like The Fury and, and whatnot um, until I graduated. And then I wanted to be working in the film industry. So um, I kind of let the fanzine go by the wayside. But in doing the fanzine, I sort of legitimized myself in the world of fanzines and uh, the editor of Cinefantastique knew me and he actually bought an ad for, very kindly bought an ad for Cinefantastique in, um, in my magazine, Bizarre. And so we had, you know, we had kind of been in touch with each other. Fred Clark was his name. And uh, so when The Fury came about, I, it was just a easy, very easy phone call to Fred and getting an assignment to do a journal on the making of it. And they had done previously a cover story on Carrie, which De Palma had really liked. And, you know, it just was all very easy and slam dunk kind of thing. And uh, so when I, unfortunately, Fred had promised us a cover story on the Fury. And then the issue got postponed because of the Star Wars coming out and they did a big double issue on Star Wars and the Fury got postponed. And by the, and then the Fury opened and Fred Clark, the editor of Sin Fantastic, saw the Fury and did not like it <laughs> and decided to pull the cover. <laughs> and, so again, here I thought, oh no, I've promised the cover to De Palma. He's gonna he's gonna blame me. It's gonna be terrible. <laughs> and you know, even worse than the Phantom of the Paradise screening and you being canceled and stuff. But no, he was, you know, he knew I didn't have control over it and it was fine. But um but it also uh kind of made me skittish about trying to mix being a journalist on film while also working in the film industry and all of the sort of conflict of interests and everything else. And, and it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth. So I kind of 
after that, put all the, the journalism aside for, for decades until uh, Richard Clemenson, the editor of Little Shop of Horrors magazine, came to me and asked me if I wanted to write about Frankenstein, The True Story, which was a favorite film of mine, two-part NBC miniseries in the 70s. And that sort of got me back into writing about about films. And, um, and so I've been kind of doing that as a labor of love thing on the side between gigs and, and really, really, really enjoying it a lot. Ted's been telling me about uh, Frankenstein and a True Story. but the, So I want to get into the reason I wanted to do Fury in particular. It, it goes to the, yeah. to the editor's reaction to the movie. And I don't know... I know you you were quoted as saying you were a little disappointed when you first saw the Fury. Ted, I don't know what your original reaction was, but you've pointed out other stuff that, like for some reason, this film kind of has fallen through the cracks between um, maybe not so much or between Carrie and maybe Blowout or something like that or Dressed to Kill. But yeah. I was late to seeing this. Um, I saw it after I moved from Evansville to Austin. We were always um, reliant on what was available at the video stores and it, it was not available at the video stores in Evansville. And I was pretty blown away by it. I mean, especially, I mean, I, I still to this day think that ending is one of the greatest endings of a movie ever. And yeah. can I, can I say that I, yeah. uh, I, you know, my oh, first film, my first De Palma film probably was Carrie. I don't think, uh, the, the early, uh, underground type stuff never played here or if it did, I didn't see it. Didn't see sisters. Saw Carrie, of course, I was in high school, blown away. We jumped out of our seats at the end and all that stuff. And I, I was I was noticing the camera work, and I was like, wow, this is some really interesting stuff going on here. But it was the fury, for me, that solidified my De Palma fan, uh, fan, uh, obsession. Okay. Um, I, I didn't see Obsession either. I knew it was out in the theaters, but I didn't see that. But uh, I saw it in college, finally. Caught up to it in college. But Fury, yeah. I just thought the Fury was so cinematic. So there were so many set pieces the set that, pieces. that just blew me away that I go, I love this guy. I'm going to follow this guy. I'm going to try to figure out more about him. And and that's what the theory means to me. It was more of, uh, of uh, a cons a consolidating my fanship for him. So. And, and I mean, I didn't want to characterize your reaction to the movie. That was saying like what you said was your initial reaction. And you seem like you've changed your mind about it since too. I appreciate it much more. I mean, it's it's really tricky when you work on a film, right? Judge it objectively when you see it because you know what was going on on set and that day and every scene and um, and you know what was cut out. You know what what problems there were. You're you know just every little thing. It's just hard to be objective. So I really it was the first time because it was really the it was the first film that I'd ever worked on. So it was the first time I was seeing a film that I actually watched being made. And it was a very bizarre experience. And it was just impossible to be objective. So I really had no idea what I had no, I, I just, it was just, I, I didn't know how to judge it. And, um, and see, when I saw Carrie, Oh my God, it blew me away from, you know, the get-go. And it is still my favorite De Palma very day. Um, I just absolutely love that film from beginning to end and just think it's, you know, it's just perfect. And, and I didn't have that feeling when I was watching The Fury. It was just such a different emotional experience watching The Fury. Um, 
because I, you know, I, I just couldn't see it objectively. So it, it's only been in recent years when I've gone back to revisit it, where I've been able to see it for, for it as a movie. And, um, and I definitely appreciate it a lot more. I will say that audiences at the time, I mean, it was a disappointment box office wise. They thought it was going to be much bigger and audiences at the time and critics at the time were not all on board. Um, it, it, I don't think it touched people quite this. Well, it definitely didn't touch people quite the same way that Carrie did. Um, yeah. It was, it was weird for me. Cause I remember thinking, why is he going back to the same subject matter again? Yeah. I thought that was a very strange, uh, but I th- I, it, it intrigued me, but yet it kind of like, I think a lot of us were thinking, why is he going back to the same well again? Uh, yeah. But, uh, the, you know, but there was a two, it was that one, two punch of carry the fury that, you know, that I thought this guy is really amazing in terms of technique and sentiment of language. Um, but uh, the fury, well, you know, I've always been curious about this after watching Scanners. Like, I think, there, like, was there a thing coming after Carrie where telekinesis was a sci-fi trope for a few years? Like, because there seems, because like, I think of things like X-Men was popular at the time or the Claremont X-Men run, Austin. Well, also it was because of the, uh, the the special effects of bladder special effects came along, right? Wasn't that, uh, Sam, would you say that all of a sudden it was like they, they had advanced special effects to that really amazing bladder effect where you could do yeah. these really uh, pulsating blow up things. So everybody went crazy with it, you know. And by the way, that um, the the design of those prosthetics was done by Dick Smith, famous for the force. And um, but when shooting was when they finally scheduled shooting to happen, he was on another film. I don't remember what it was but couldn't actually be there on set to do the actual uh, applications. And so they hired William Tuttle, the great, you know, veteran um, makeup artist who did like Seven Faces of Dr. Lau and, you know, just the old school, you know, much more old school guy. And um, and I would sit next to him in the van going to and from set every day from the hotel to the set. And we would talk about, you know, working with George Powell and all this stuff. It was just amazing. And, but he was the one applying that on Andrew Stevens. And I remember that the seam on the bridge of the nose was a real problem. And it kept coming up. It kept loosening up, especially when Andrew Stevens would furrow his brow and um, in acting the moment, um, it just kept loosening up the, the, prosthetic Hmm. glue and De Palma would get, you know, was getting very frustrated and poor Bill, who was, you know, rather elderly at that time, um, you know, was frustrated and, and flustered and, you know, wanted to do a good job. And, you know, when you're, when everybody's watching you and time is slipping away, you know, it's, I, I just felt so sorry for him at how much, you know, he was having trouble getting that. And, and it was never really perfect. Uh, and, and when you look at the film, when they cut to the very tight inserts of the forehead, those inserts are the fastest inserts in the history of cinema because, and Paul Hurst told me, you know, he said, well, you know, if, if you look at it, we wanted people to focus on the pulsating veins. And we figured if we were on there just for a split second, that's what you'd what your eyes would go to but if we held it any longer your eyes were going to start to see the imperfections 
be the imperfection. Exactly. Well, I noticed so, on the in, on the end credits, you, you uh, uh, Tuttle, Rick Baker, and Ad Flowers, all three got a, a, a they're on the credit by themselves. So did Rick Baker help Tuttle, or was I was going to ask because he did the dummies, didn't he? Yes, he I, he was not on set at all, and I didn't I, I didn't do all of the shooting. They went back to Hollywood and did some um, sets. And, and some of the things like the spinning, you know, and the explosion of the of John Cassavetes and all that stuff was done in L.A. And I wasn't there for that. And okay. so I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty I'm sh- probably Rick Baker was actually present for some of that stuff. But um, but the vast majority of the film was shot on location in Chicago. And that's that's what I witnessed. And the only special effects makeup guy was Bill Tuttle, who was on set. So were you there the days of the uh, the the slow motion uh, uh, Gillian's escape? Were you there for those days? To wow. me, which to me is the that's, centerpiece of that film. It is. Which is, I and agree. that's probably the one scene that just made just grabbed me so uh, oh, yeah. immensely. I cry every time I see that sequence. It's just the most heartbreaking moment. And Carrie Snodgrass is just she was exactly her character in real life she just was the most ethereal most genuine sweetest person and oh my god that moment just i mean i'm i'm getting a little verklempt just talking about it it's just such a heartbreaking moment in that film absolutely well it's also like just a technical marvel too because it's just like i i've heard uh de palma talk about and he, he it's, it's a key to his set pieces where a lot of times he'll you know it's a lot of slow motion it's very clear geography of what's happening but it's also very silent like one of the cool things i love in that sequence is when kirk douglas first shoots his gun you hear the sound and then when he shoots the guy that's trying to take amy Irvin away you don't hear the gunshot and he always says it was trying to give space for the composer to do some work. Yeah, it's a, it's such a ballsy moment, yeah. though. Just to to take that sequence and just keep slow, keep it at slow motion. Right. I mean, I don't think. I mean, even Sam, uh, even Peckinpah, I don't know, would could we pull something off this Different romantic. Sam. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, but it's just a uh, uh, when people. When people talk about, you know, De Palma's, his, some of his set pieces are operatic. This is right. the perfect example of that. I mean, it's just the music, the slow motion, the ballet of it all. It's just, it's, it just takes you into a whole nother realm of, that not many filmmakers have, have mastered the way that De Palma was able to do that kind of thing. And when he was on fire doing that stuff, it was, some of those sequences were just absolutely incredible. And you think about even Dress to Kill, the um, the whole museum, museum sequence, no dialogue, and it's all this great Pino Donaggio cue and and just all the steady cam and visuals and everything. I mean, I saw uh, Dress to Kill a couple, two or three years ago at the Egyptian Theater here in L.A. When Nancy Allen was there for a Q and A and everything, that sequence that sequence ended the museum sequence. It got a humongous applause <laughs> from the audience. I mean, you know, how many times are you in a movie when people break, spontaneously break out and applause in the middle of a movie? Yeah, in the middle of a movie <laughs> for a sequence. You know, I mean, and that I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, those moments are incredible. I don't get people who don't like it.
one sequence that I always point out is that no one ever talks about is later is the Black Dahlia staircase sequence. No. Like he was, he's been doing this throughout his career, and like yeah. they're all, they all seem to be like the just there's the great set piece. that's the reason for the movie. I mean, I, I, mean, I got to a, when I was in college, I got to a point. I said, if you don't, if you if you love cinema, yeah, you gotta love De Palma. I mean, I, that's what I thought. I mean, I, I might be naive by saying that, but no, and you know, people. The, the haters, you know, like, oh, he's ripping off Hitchcock or whatever. And I'm like, well, I love Hitchcock and I love seeing, you know, reinterpretations and, do, right. you know, all the. And the next step, the next evolution of Hitchcock. You know, right. I, I think he, I think he took that language, like he says, he takes the language of Hitchcock and expounds on it and expands on it and lifts it up and goes with new directions for it. You know yeah. what I, you know what I noticed this time watching uh, the fury that I never noticed before cuz I going through this movie it seems like there's almost no Hitchcock until the very end when um uh, Robin falls and or it's the two deaths at the end. It uh -huh. looks it looks like Jimmy Stewart falling in rear window. Yeah. Oh completely. It's and and there's no question that De Palma was thinking of that moment with the hand, you know, the, the hand slipping away and everything. Absolutely North by Northwest. Okay. Um, and, it, it, and, it, and the, Vertigo too, you know? Yeah. But Vert yes, you're, you're, you're right about Vertigo, but also I think it's that moment on at, in North by Northwest at the Mount Rushmore, you know, Mount Rushmore where, where Cary Grant is trying to, you know, where he's reaching down to hold, um, Eva Marie Saint and, and pulled okay. her up. Um, I mean, I think it's both. And it's, you know, anyway, the, some of the, you know, some of the weird things that happened during the shooting, and, and when you mention that moment, um, it reminds me of it. Um, there was a very strangely scripted moment where when Kirk Douglas falls, and he's on the ground. John, I, I think I know what you're going to talk about. This is great. This is great. So John Cassavetes and I watched him shoot it. John Cassavetes comes up and is looking down at him. And there are these, you know, low angle camera looking up at Cassavetes and Cassavetes, you know, high angle looking down at Kirk Douglas. And Kirk Douglas just gives the finger to Cassavetes. <laughs> And then Cassavetes gone, and then just point blank, just blam, just shoots him. And when it was screened, uh, I don't think we had test screenings per se, but I remember there was a screening with you know few people there, and people just howled with laughter, <sighs> and um, and it ended up being cut out. They cut out the the flipping of the bird. And if I'm not mistaken, they cut out Cassavetes actually shooting. Yeah, him. that's definitely gone. That's definitely gone too. And the uh, but if you look really closely, there's a shot of Cassavetes where the smoke from the barrel of the gun is streaming up. Okay. Uh, so next time you see it, look for that. I mean, I think it's under the frame. I don't think you see the gun, but you, but there's a little trail of smoke coming up. Okay. And that's what remnant up. Um, Maybe it's just smoke from the room. You know, that room was smoky whenever he was up there. <laughs> yeah. No, no. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it was just as, and as I was watching him shoot that, I was having stifled giggles. 
And I just thought, mm, I don't know if this is going to work to have him actually flip a bird at him at this really dramatic moment. It just seemed comical to me. And, uh, and I, and oddly enough, there was a, there was a moment in a hammer film called horror of Frankenstein, which is an absolutely dreadful movie. It was the one time they didn't use Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein. They, they went younger and cast Ralph Bates and it was, Jimmy Sangster was directing it and they added in some darker humor and stuff to it. And it just, the whole tone of it didn't work at all. And there's a moment in there where a severed arm that they've got hooked up to electrodes or whatever in the laboratory comes to, you know, they're, they're bringing it to life and it comes to life and then it flips a bird at, 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 the, at Dr. Frankenstein. And in, and in England, um, that gesture isn't what they do in England is they do the, the V. Okay. And so they shot it both ways. So the prints that were released in England had him doing, you know, up yours and then, and then the bird for the, for the American prints. And it was just one of those moments where I was just like, Oh my God, this is, this is the all time low of Hammerfelds. You know, can they go any lower and any sillier than this? And, uh, and so when I was seeing, you know, Kirk Douglas flip this bird, I kept thinking of that moment and just going, oh, no, 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 no. This just can't be happening. And thank God it got cut out. I never said a word to DePaulva. I never <laughs> been in. But, in, you know, secretly inside, I was just like, oh, thank God. <laughs> part of the reason I think the, um, the two deaths in going back to the operatic part and just having a little bit of tragedy, like it, it for me, it always sets up the ending. Because like the, the, my first viewing the ending, you just you're like, that seems like a excessive. And then it, the punctuation mark. But when you get to Cassavetti's death, I counted today. So there's two two set up, or two takes they said they did. And there was like six or seven cameras. But yeah. I counted 13 shots of the same explosion action in a row. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so great. And and John Williams' music during it, too. Just, oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Speaking I of John Williams. Uh, it's right up there in the in the top part, <laughs> I think. It's it's always been the reason I I was really drawn to this, just because it's like he it's his follow up to Star Wars and Close Encounters. And um, you know, I thought he was you know I could tell he was I think he's channeling or homage to Harriman. Totally, but, yeah. totally. But but he makes it his own. Uh, yeah, it's, more, it's, more so he, than something like Family Plot. Yeah, where it doesn't. Yeah. So then, yeah. do you uh, Sam? Do you have any uh, rec recollection that maybe? Was John supposed to go on and do more De Palma films, or he couldn't get Pino and uh, back for the Fury, or you know what? What was happened? John, there? Was John Williams too expensive? John Williams A was very expensive, and B was just just unavailable. You know, I I I um I don't know exactly what happened, but I I just don't think he was available anytime that that De Palma was you know maybe thinking of using him again. Well, did Brian he, did Brian want to it, use Pino, Pino again for from Carrie? He, and he after the Fury, then we did home movies, uh, which was very low budget. Uh, we did that in the summer of '78, and that was when I had just graduated. De Palma called me up and said, "I know you're graduating. Do you want to come up and work on this low budget film we're doing this summer?" And I'm like, "Uh, yeah." <laughs> 
And uh, I thought I was just going to be an assistant again, like I had been on the Fury. And I get there and he goes, you're going to be the associate producer and production manager because we can't afford anybody. <laughs> so we're going to hire you to do that. And so he just, he, I guess, just trusted me and threw me into the deep end to see if I could swim. And I guess I did okay. Cause then he, after that, he hired me on as his full-time assistant to work on whole bunch of projects and development that didn't get made but um dress to kill and some and and blow out and other other stuff that did happen but um on home movies because it was so low budget there's no way he's going to get uh john williams but he he got in touch with pino and asked pino to do the score and do it very cheaply and everything and uh and pino was was happy to do it and that's when I met Pino because he flew in from Italy and did the spotting session, which for those who don't know is when you sit down with the director and watch the film, stop and start and figure out, you know, okay, the music cue is going to start at this particular frame and they're going to end at this frame and what we want to highlight and what, you know, what stings you want for a scary moment or, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and so he really loved working with Pino again on that. And I don't think there was any question when Dress to Kill came around. It was just Pino was going to do it. Mm. Uh, so maybe think, so maybe you think, uh, I remember thinking uh, when John Carpenter got to do a big budget film, The Thing, he hired Morricone because he had the money to hire Morricone. So I'm wondering yeah. if Brian, because he had a big budget, he hired John because he could afford him. Because I was looking at the De Palma documentary, just I had to talk about the Fury. I, and he said, the, yeah. I think one reason he did this movie was they came to him and he said, oh, this is a nice budget, big stars. Sure, I'll do it. It was not, yeah. you know, not worried about the same subject matter, you know. Uh, yeah. took, so he had oh, more money to play with. Would, he would have been drawn to another telekinesis you know, project, but since, you know, obviously Fox wanted to catch in on Carrie and, uh, and who better to go to than De Palma, you know, I think it just, I think it was that they came to him. I think he was very flattered that he was now being approached by a major studio to do a major studio film. You know, it hadn't happened to him. The only major studio film he'd ever done was get to know your rabbit. <laughs> right. Which he got fired cool. from. And so, you know, this was his sort of come up. And I, I mean, it was his way of, of, you know, having his revenge against Hollywood who treated <laughs> him badly. And it, you know, had forced him to do all these, you know, to go scrounging around begging for money and doing little independent, smaller films. So, you know, they, a big studio comes to you and they want to do this big thing. And yeah, I mean, I think he was, I think he was, you know, very, very happy to say yes to that. It's sort of like uh, Sergio. I mean, big money. Too. I, Everything's I, like I, Sergio. I, I got to bring, bring a, I got to bring a Loyoni uh, uh, reference, but uh, um, I think he was not. He wanted to go on and do the gangster film after Good Man the Ugly, but Paramount says do it here. You can do anything you want, but do a western again. There are more so, directors than Sergio. Well, I know, but I'm now. saying it's again. It's kind of that scenario where uh, the, know, the the commerce and same the subject matter. I mean, same same genre, but uh, you can what do what they you want, want you to want the one for them as opposed to the one for you. Yeah. So anyway, I yeah. just I just makes me think of that. Sam, I wanted to ask you going back to home movies real quick. What was or did you? What were your interactions, or did you overlap with uh, Mark Romanek? Yes, I did. In fact, I met Mark Romanek on um, 
the Fury. He was. He, uh, Wikipedia said he was on the Fury, but I thought like he went to Saren Lawrence or something. So I thought it was strictly he started on home movies. That's interesting. He he lived in Chicago. That's where he's from. Okay. And he was another De Palma um, groupie, you know, fanatic like I was. And he, I don't even, I don't even remember how it happened, but somehow he came from a wealthy family. And somehow I think when they were looking for locations in Forest Hills, which was the big ritzy neighborhood, somehow his, his family connections or something got him introduced to the right people. And he got, uh, he was able to come on as like an intern and worked some days. I don't think he was there as many days. As, I don't think he was there every day like I was when we were shooting in Chicago. But I, he was there on the day that I was, uh, we did the old Chicago amusement park. Because I remember I handed him my camera and said, here, I want to get a picture of me talking to De Palma. And he, and there's <laughs> a talking to De Palma that Mark Romanek took <laughs> with my camera. Nice. And, and you know he was he was a nice guy and um and then when de palma was teaching a course at sarah lawrence college in the spring of 78 he had he de palma had a treatment for home movies he had the class uh, he divide you know each student worked on different scenes and throughout the the semester and by the end of the semester they had basically written the entire screenplay and De Palma had sort of polished it and everything. And now they wanted to do a film of it and have do it very down and dirty, low budget. And they were going to use students from the, his course, the course that he had taught at Sarah Lawrence college. They were going to use those students as members of the crew and shoot it at Sarah Lawrence college and get, you know, free locations and stuff. Um, and so, they were going to use some professionals uh, on the crew, like the DP was a professional DP. Um, uh, and, you know, but mix it in with sort of student and non-union people and whatnot and do it um, as down and dirty as they could. And so De Palma called me in and then he also called in Mark Romanic because he remembered him as, as you know, a guy who was smart and wanted to be a filmmaker and all that kind of stuff. And so Mark came in from Chicago to work on it that summer, but he was not part of the Sarah Lawrence. Units. Okay. I, I got that part wrong. Well, I always found and, it fascinating from home movies that like, you know, Keith, you, you worked with Keith Gordon a lot, obviously between this and yeah. just to kill, but like those two great yeah. filmmakers came from this too, on top of you yeah. too. So, and Keith and Mark hit it off and they, you know, partnered together on, you know, collaborating on, on static, static, exactly. And, um, yeah, so that's how that all came about was on home movies that where they met and, uh, and worked. I think there was other things that they worked on besides static or at least developed things that may not have gotten off the ground. I forget exactly. And, uh, but, um, yeah, but then Mark, you know, Mark definitely, you know, went out on his own and was not involved in in Dress to Kill. And I, you know, I stayed on as De Palma's full-time assistant after that.
I, I thought one interesting thing was uh, Kale, Pauline and, and her. I was going to end with some Pauline. Oh, Kale okay. Quote, well, so uh, if, you, okay. If, you, if you want to go ahead. Well, go no, ahead. this one quote, which was interesting, because you said you you said, uh, you know, Samson, there is some Hitchcock, and you didn't really see much Hitchcock, right? And I thought it was interesting that uh, she goes, "No Hitchcock thriller uh, has ever has ever been so intense when so far." Or had had so many classic sequences. That's what she said about the Fury. Well, I think that you know, it's. I mean, you could sort of compare, I guess, the the Kirk Douglas character to say a Cary Grant character in North by Northwest, where you get sort of all caught up in this big, you know, secret conspiracy that's going on. You know, the big MacGuffin, or you know, whatever. Um, and it was, it just seemed, I think it, I think that when people are thinking of connections to Hitchcock, it, it is more in that vein of North by Northwest or Man Who Knew Too Much or things of that nature. Um, but yeah. Maybe he know. hides it better in this one. Uh, like you just mean the espionage aspect to it? aspect of it i mean you know this that's what was very different than carrie is that you know carrie was very much you know teens high school you know coming of age kind of thing whereas this is a big espionage thriller you know with the telekinesis aspects to it but it's 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 a whole different genre in a in a in in that regard and it's interesting too they said that some of the reviews at the time we're having problems with the narrative, uh, just just uh, keeping uh, uh, track of it. But I, you know, watching it, maybe, maybe I don't know. It, is it keeping track of it or keeping like why things? But it, actually, if you watch it several times, it all makes sense. And there's like an agency within an agency, right? And what they're doing and why the schools here. It's all there. I, re I read some it's reviews just... for going into this and tried to understand what they were talking about. And there's certain things that bombed, like um, the fact it, people touching Amy Irving inconsistently made them bleed, stuff like that. Yeah, well, well especially with the way Kirk Douglas's character treated her after a certain point when he smacked her right. and stuff like that. Like, that's an intensive, yeah. stressful thing. Shouldn't something happen from that? But even then, I was just like, I think it's a, her power is evolving. Right. And she hasn't, got, no. hasn't gotten into control. So you could justify. It going uh, being in and out of, in terms of her power, but there's also a kind of I remember at the time thinking this was one of the things that really bugged me. Um, if they can levitate, how could Andrew Stevens fall to his death? You know things like that. I well, isn't were... that a suicide then, or does that make it more of a suicide? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, maybe I guess is the perfect re response to that. <laughs> I also yeah. thought in the movie too. There's there, there's some. Uh, that's, uh, that's the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> there's a. I thought also because he's in a big budget film. Did you get a sense that he's actually doing kind of a big budget Hollywood things? Like I noticed in the alleyway, that guy taking out the trash, the, uh, he yeah. gets hit twice, and there's like you know, uh, I'm like that's big time Hollywood humor. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not really Brian's humor. And I was thinking maybe he actually was tailoring it a little bit for a blockbuster uh well, isn't that hotel the same hotel they shot in the blues brothers i know the blues brothers is later but that's kind of a joke you would have in that movie there too yeah i that's was that yeah i mean it, it, the whole the whole production was just a big can i say it a little overblown kind of you know how a big hollywood movie yeah and i think and i think he was, De Palma was just having fun playing in that sandbox, you know? He hadn't been able to really play much in that world. 
good. And uh, and the script, you know, he he wasn't he hadn't written the script, so I don't know. I I would think that those, uh, you know, trash can chase scenes and everything were probably probably mostly kind of in the script. So, you know, the scriptwriter was probably doing his own sort of homages to to Hollywood, you know, big budget Hollywood chase scenes and whatnot. And, and De Palma reading it probably just said, Oh, this is, this is fun. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to experience that, you know, making that moment. Was it, was it in Kirk Douglas's contract to uh, have his uh, shirt off and and show how shape, what shape he was in at that age? (laughs) (laughs) That I don't know, but, uh, but yeah, I mean that you know there were also moments like that that I find a little cringy at the I did at the time I don't know it was I, you know I it again I, I have come to appreciate it but I don't find it to be the perfect well but the, the the one I always point out or think about uh, it really is the last one was. Um, his escape from the hotel uh, to use the quote from the wire. That is some Spider-Man shit there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, well, Brian himself says in the documentary that was done on him recently where he said, uh, it's not one of my favorite. It's, it's kind of down. See, and when I watched it in the documentary, I was like, I don't agree with you, man. It's <laughs> you, 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 no, you got I, the ending. Yeah. And it's, I, I think it, it's got its own charms. I mean, you, you know, it's just, you have to get into that world. I mean, I think when people, when audiences went to see it and when critics went to see it, they were expecting Carrie. And it's so completely not. It's so completely uh, in its own international thriller, you know, world. And I think it just took people by surprise. I don't think that they really. And also look at the poster, you know. Oh, my God, that poster is so cool. It, it's cool. It annoyed me that it wasn't the actors. It's just two models, mm. you know, shadow with the light behind them and stuff. But it doesn't in any way tell you that this is going to be this big international thriller. I mean, it doesn't mm. emphasize Douglas or it doesn't emphasize, you know, it's it's basically emphasizing two teens with telekinesis. And that really feels like a sequel to Carrie, you know, <laughs> it's... Uh, it, it does feel like a Polish film fe- or a poster or something like that too. It's very it's very artfully done, but but maybe yeah. not evocative enough to what, all the elements of the movie. Yeah. yeah, they could have been done an old school poster like Frank McCarthy or uh, McGinnis drawing it, where you had Douglas running and uh, the, yep. the teens on the ele- 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 levitating shirtless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <it's>, yeah. <laughs> explosions. You know uh, that would have because you're yeah, right. It just I think Fox wanted to, they're probably trying to think, uh, carry carry carry, and people got yeah. there and goes this isn't carry. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the thing I him having a budget, I think that's always one of the things that I've loved about the Palma movies because he's someone that doesn't seem like like you know the money's going to go into making the camera float in a cinematic way. (laughs) He needs a budget, yeah, Yeah. to do what he wants to do. Uh, I also the fun another thing fun about the film is all the uh, all the uh, actor uh, all the little uh, people that you get to see in this thing, like Charles Durning on his way up. Daryl yeah. Hannah and her little bit first uh, performance. Uh, Gordon Jump and as the, uh, the 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 kidnap uh, the uh, father and the Dennis Franz and yeah uh, Dennis Franz. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun just going through that you know in that regard. And, you know, not necessarily on its way up, but Bill Finley is in there. Oh yeah. And, um, I don't even can you 
Can you see Jim Belushi on the beach at all? I guess it's. I guess I it's saw it in Wikipedia. I didn't see it in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just didn't notice. For that day, and I, and I remember meeting him, and you know, thinking, God, he looks so much like his brother. <laughs> and I, uh, and that was cool. And there was other. Um, there was another SNL connection. Um, that Fiona Lewis, who, by the way, I was a huge fan of because she had been in Dr. Fives Rises Again. Yeah, yeah. Been in the Jack Palance Dracula that Dan Curtis did. And she had been in Listomania, Ken Russell. And she had a small part in The Fearless Vampire Killers, the Polanski film that I'm absolutely bonkers for. So, I mean, I was... Ex- as excited meeting Fiona Lewis as I was Kirk Douglas. In fact, maybe a little bit more. <laughs> and, um, and she at that time was dating uh, Buck Henry. And Buck Henry came to visit Chicago for a few days and they were hanging out at the hotel and stuff. And I got to meet him a little bit and he was fantastic. And, you know, he he wasn't a regular on Saturday Night Live, but he had hosted and he was, he was like a regular host. And this would have been after yeah. like Heaven Can Wait too. So he's really at the yeah. high point too. I mean, he he was just a, you know, a very really considered a great comic figure at that time. And uh, and so it was really fun to meet him. And um, Sam, so, Sam was was there was the the guy running and the jump running suit in the slow motion sequence. Isn't that J. Patrick McAmara? Yeah. Isn't yeah. isn't like he and a lot of those guys movies like uh, Spielberg's and yeah. And, Counters and and some other stuff. Yeah, he he was he was kind of repertory player in that whole group. Back yeah, then. I thought I was like also not turn around. He's in a Spielberg. He's over here in Amelius, maybe or whatever. It's yeah. uh, Sam. I wanted to ask you. Uh, you interviewed Cassavetes. What was Cassavetes yeah. like on set? Just because I've always pictured. You, you said he was put. He was full energy. He was putting it all into there. And but Cassavetes famously is doing these roles to pay for his movies. I, you'd seem yeah. like it'd be easy to phone this in, but he doesn't. He in, when he does these roles, he's not. It seems like no. He was he was totally professional and intense and took it very seriously. He was not phoning it in in any way, shape, or form. Um, but he, you know, was very open when I interviewed him about his motivation that he definitely used the money he made on these kinds of movies to fund his own films. And so he, you know, he was very clear and very, very um, matter of fact about that. And I don't think it was a secret to De Palma or anyone else. Um, But he definitely, you know, gave it his all and was, you know, it was very much, you know, giving the best performance one could give. I don't think it was a genre that particular, that he particularly took seriously. That was what uh, I was going to ask too about just cause it seems like this is, a, this is not a movie he'd want to go see. No, def- definitely not. Okay. And so, you know, he, he would take it very seriously when the camera was rolling, but between shots, you know, he, he would have, you know, he would kind of be laughing at things or, you know, <laughs> just kind of like, are you kidding me? Or, you know, and definitely in that moment when Kirk Douglas is flipping in the bird, I don't think either one of them were uh, totally on board with that moment. <laughs> I hear the, any discussions they might have had privately with Brian, but they were kind of 
you know, rolling their eyes a bit. Were you? Was it easy? Was it easy to talk to John and Kirk uh, for, for your for your magazine article? And were they were they uh, accessible? Uh, uh, they very they were very nice. They were totally professional. Kirk Douglas, man, he is like he was incredible. The very first day, he walked onto set. We were shooting at the mansion, and he, um. It was in that living room scene where he jumps over the coffee table and everything. I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, that was his first day. And your glass he, removal story is amazing too, by the way. Yes, the, t- that 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 coffee table. They they removed the glass, and he really wanted to do his own stunt, and they uh, so they didn't want him to break the glass and hurt himself. So they took the glass out of the table and just balanced like some of the tchotchkes or tchotchkes around the edges. And if you really look at it at that moment, once when the glass is removed, it looks really silly that everything that was in the middle of the table is now all, all balanced on the edge of this frame of a table. But at any rate, he, um, he went around the set and introduced himself to every single crew member, including me, and asked our name and what we were doing. And then the next day, he came on to set and went around and shook everybody's hand and said, how you doing, Sam? How you doing, Joe? How you doing, Mark? Whatever. He remembered everyone's name and made a point of that. And and the crew were, the you know, every jaw was dropped. This never happened to them, ever. And, I, and it made such an impression on me that I do the exact same thing on every film I direct. I go around the first day and learn everybody's name. And um, at the end of every day, I go around and shake everybody's hand and call them by name and thank them for the work that they've done. And it was all because of that lesson that, that Kirk Douglas taught me. Mm. It Everybody feel like they were respected it made everybody feel like we were part of a family. We were all in this together, making this film. Nobody, there was no hierarchy. Um, it just, it was incredible. And I loved, I loved him for that. And and uh, I just thought it was in, just an amazing thing to do. And he didn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's and and it's not easy to to remember everybody's name, you yeah. know. To, do that and uh the fact that he took the time to do that was just so impressive and i will never forget it and then working with him again on home movies he was fantastic and did the same thing and was just great to everybody was so um you know such a father figure to you know all of us young kids and students and everybody that were working on that film mixed in with with professionals and and there was no attitude about it he was he was just thrilled to to be working and and glad that everybody was you know wanted everybody to have a great time and to be part of the team um, and which very different than De Palma I will say I mean De Palma does not kibitz or hang out with the crew or you know I don't think he would know everybody's name for instance um you know department heads or people that he's having to deal directly he would but um you know the grips and electrics and and people that he wouldn't normally interact with probably there you know there there just wasn't that sort of connection at all
I think one last question I wanted to ask about uh, after Dress to Kill, he kind of um, uh, pushed you out of the nest to a certain extent to get you to make your own movies. Yeah, there. Well, it we I worked on um, pre-production of Blowout, and then he at the same time Charlie Loventhal was one of his students at um, Sarah Lawrence College when they were writing home movies, and Charlie had written a uh, coming of age script called the first time and wanted to direct it. And he came from a fairly wealthy family and they were going to put up half of the budget. The budget was about 400,000 and they were going to put up a couple of hundred thousand and um, they needed to raise the rest of the money. And, and De Palma was kind of advising him on it as, as, as a mentor advisor or whatever. And De Palma came to me and said, hey, you know, Charlie wants to make this film. He's got half the money. Why don't you produce it and see if you can raise the rest of the money and then produce it? And, and it could be shooting at the same time that blowout is happening. And I'm not going to be able to, um, you know, be there all the time or anything. And, and you'd, you'd be great. You'd be great to team up with him to do this thing. So I <laughs> set a, I organized a meeting, or I got a meeting with Bob Shea at New Line Cinema and went in, and it was a slam dunk. We asked for 200000 and he gave it to us. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, that's not how this normally happens, but okay, good. And De Palma laughed and said, I knew I would pick the right person for this. And so... Um, I went off and produced that movie and unfortunately it was shooting the exact same time as Blowout because I would have loved to have been on Blowout during the shoot. But um, but yeah, we'd made that and um, in the cast was Wendy Jo Sperber who was who was kind of a same as William McNamara, was kind of this repertory player that was being passed around. She was in 1941 for Spielberg. She was in you I Want to Hold You and for for Robert Zemeckis, used cars also, yeah, used cars, and, and I just absolutely loved her. And uh, Nancy Allen had starred with her in both "I Want to Hold Your Hand" and 1941. And so I went to Nancy and I said, "Is there any way you could put in a good word for us? Because we'd love to have Wendy Joe in the first time." And she said, "Of course," and just called her right up and said, "Oh, you you know, you got to come do this movie." And so she was in it, and um. It had Wallace Shawn and Catherine Damon from Soap and um, Tim Choate was the lead. And it was just a really fun little coming of age comedy. It I went absolutely nowhere. New Line Cinema released it. And uh, De Palma was going to be getting an, an executive producer credit. Um, but Bob Shea, when he put up half the money, said, I want to share executive producer credit with De Palma. And De Palma did not want to share the credit, and Bob Shea would not relent, would not relinquish or have separate cards or anything else. And it turned into a standoff. And De Palma just said, "Screw it! Don't credit me as executive producer. Give me a credit as creative consultant," which was just a ridiculously not very important credit. And. Uh, and I was pissed off because, you know, I really wanted De Palma's name on there as executive producer. And 
you know, it would like you'd be like Spielberg, executive producer on a Zem- on a Zemeckis film or something. You know, mm-hmm. I want that cachet, and but um, but it just ended up being creative consultant, and uh, but the and the film didn't make any money, and you know, whatever. So um, although it's a cute film, and I wish it would be rediscovered and come out on Blu-ray or something so people could see it. It's bare, it's really hard to even find, um, and then. Um, I could have gone back to work for De Palma, but my, I had brought in my best friend, Gary Hill to be a second assistant on, uh, dress to kill for certain days when De Palma always wanted me to be on set with him if anything came up, but there was always things that needed to be picked up at his office mail or things to be taken to the bank or you know just whatever and so when on busier days we would bring in my friend gary hill to be a runner kind of to be able to go offset to do things and so when i left during pre-production of blowout to go work on producing the first time then Gary Hill stepped up into my position to be his assistant on blowout. And that worked out very well. He was very happy with Gary. And so Gary ended up continuing as his assistant on, um, you know, the subsequent films after that, a few, a few of them. Um, and then um, I could have gone back, but I didn't really want to go back, you know, to be an assistant. I had now produced a film um, it was even a little weird to be the associate producer and production manager on home movies and then follow that up with being his assistant on Dress to Kill. You know, it, it felt like a little bit of a stepping, you know, backwards a little bit in terms of responsibility and whatnot. So um, now that I had actually had a full-fledged producing credit on the first time, I just felt like I need to need to really move on. And... Um, so and i wanted to direct so i directed a wrote directed and produced a short film called double negative it was a 20 minute comedy that i shot on 35 millimeter and it starred um bill randolph who had played the taxi cab driver in dress to kill the there's two taxi cab scenes there's one where angie dickinson is making out with the guy in the back not that one but the one when nancy allen is is in the back and he brings her to um Columbus Circle in New York and he gets out and then Bobby the killer is coming up alongside of the cab and the cab driver is looking in the side view mirror and just as he gets there she gets there um, Bill slams the door open and knocks her down so that guy um, and he was also in Friday the 13th part 2 and stuff he was the lead in my short film and then Bill Finley, who was the Phantom of the Paradise and the Mad Doctor and Sisters and had been in small part in uh, The Fury, is also in it. Wayne Knight, who was Newman on Seinfeld and was in Jurassic Park and Basic Instinct was in it. And also Justin Henry, the little boy from Kramer versus Kramer. So I had this really cool, for my for me, for this little tiny short film, a pretty pretty cool cast. And, uh, and that got a lot of buzz. It got, it got uh, selected for Sundance. It uh, was nominated for an award at the Chicago Film Festival. And it got, in, and it ended up opening. I shot it in 35 millimeter because I really wanted it to play in movie theaters. 
And it did. It opened in Los Angeles with After Hours, the Scorsese film. Oh, wow. And, and in New York, it opened with Emerald Forest, the John Borman film. And it got viewed in the New York Times by Jana Maslin, and she gave it a really nice review. And so that, I parlayed all of that into getting my first feature film off the ground, which was Guilty as Charged. And that was with Rod Steiger and Lauren Hutton, Heather Graham, Isaac Hayes, uh, Zelda Rubenstein, et cetera. And um, so, yeah, I mean, he, you know, and, oh, and by the way, my short film, De Palma let me use editing his editing room in between projects. And he was very helpful um, in, you know, looking at it, giving me, you know, feedback and things like that. So it was, it was all great. And it was very friendly um, moving out of the nest and, and moving on with my career when he and Nancy Allen divorced. However, um, I kind of got lumped in with, uh, with team, the team Nancy side. <laughs> to use the Curb Your Enthusiasm team thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Nancy and I were, Nancy's a much more personable sort of person. We were always very close and, you know, just, it, it just, I gravitated to her on a much more intimate friend level. And so, yeah, it just, a lot of, a lot of times when people get divorced, their friends sort of get split up in the divorce and that's yeah. what happened. And, uh, so, um, yeah. So, and, and it just, and ever since then, I've just not really been in touch with him and we just drifted apart and didn't really keep in touch at all. Um, there was no, there was nothing, there was no ill will or any kind of falling out. It just, it just drifted. And, uh, and then I, uh, did a show. My second film was a Showtime, uh, whodunit thriller that starred Nancy. And so I got to actually direct her and, um, you know, so I'm sure if De Palma was even aware that that happened, and I'm not even sure he was aware of it, but if he was, you know, he would have thought of me as pretty much in, you know, fancy camp. So. You know, in Paul Hirsch's book, it wasn't a divorce, but he has a kind of similar story, although they ended up coming back together after a certain point. Like when the books are written, they're still ta they're talking now. But there was a period where he couldn't pinpoint a reason, but they just stopped talking after a certain. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I mean, all kinds of reasons why those things happen. But uh, yeah, and, you know, Paul, um, I think that with Paul, I mean, they had such a great collaboration but then when Paul did Star Wars and just became, you know, this just A-list editor, I think there were a couple times when Brian asked Paul to do a movie and Paul was busy, you know, doing Empire Strikes Back or, you know, whatever else. And I think I think Brian was maybe a little bit hurt or, you know, that his guy that he had kind of discovered i guess you would say or you know that they were they were pretty much a team on on all of those earlier films that his guy you know his allegiance had slightly shifted and was oh so you're doing the you know these bigger budgeted films or whatever and i i, I could see brian a little um you know 
a little hurt by that. Um, I don't know if that's how Paul would describe it, but that as, as an outsider looking in on it, that's how I always felt. It, it must be pretty nice to uh, go from Paul Hirsch to Jared Greenberg, though, for Undressed to Kill, though. So, uh, yeah, it was not. It was not a, a, a. You know, it was definitely not slumming. Should have to go. <laughs> for sure. What is uh, on top of the your directing projects? What's the future of your film writing right now? Um. Well, the let's see. <laughs> I am. I oddly enough, the fanzine that I did bizarre. I am collecting all those interviews that I did in those magazines and putting them in a book um, where I'm writing about, you know, all the anecdotes of getting the interviews and what what went on behind the scenes um, in addition to interviews themselves. And uh, and it's going to be a very funny book. And I'm also getting a great cartoonist friend of mine, um, Dan Gallagher to do some amusing drawings and to do a, a funny sort of Jack Davis, um, Frank Frazetta-esque caricature for the cover that'll be really fun. And uh, I haven't announced this anywhere, but I'm, I'm going to, I think the name is going to be, I was, I was a teenage monster hunter. <laughs> I, how I met Christopher Lee, you know, bit surprised Peter Cushing and, and all something like that and just make it fun and kitsch and, and but also have some you know really cool vintage interviews. Of- well, I was going to ask. I, I thought uh, this is a time and day to because uh, uh, everybody's doing this. Put uh, put together an omnibus of your fanzine run. But you're going to say what you're doing. I guess is going to take put put together the fanzine run, but add, uh, note it uh, with annotations to it. Yeah. The thing that I, yeah, I will not be doing what you're saying. And here's why. <laughs> half of those issues, you know, it, about half were devoted to the interviews, but the other half were devoted to reviews of horror films. And I am so embarrassed by. Oh, my, well, yeah. My teenage writing, my teenage opinion. Okay. Fair enough. My, my embarrassing. You know, lack of, I mean, we didn't have the ability to look things up on IMDb and just like, oh God, it's just too embarrassing. I can't do it. If people want to pay to find those fanzines, you know, on eBay and search the world for copies of them, fine, have at it. But I'm not going to contribute to the (laughs) spread of those horrible, horrible, embarrassing reviews. So yeah, I am, I am cherry picking the good stuff. (laughs) Okay. and uh, and putting that all together in this book. <laughs> all right, as promised, I wanted to close with the uh, uh, quotes I had cherry pick cherry picked from Pauline yeah. Kale's review of the Fury. She's asked oh. if um, the Fury might be De Palma's Wild Bunch, and she quoted that De Palma has a jazzy willingness to appear crazy or campy, um, but then she details that the visual rhythms outpace the story. And at one point she says that, at least in this movie, and this is in, to mind you, Pauline Kael's De Palma reviews were typically, this is something, 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 the greatest of all time, something, something, the greatest in cinema history, is very littered in all these reviews, including this, The Fury. But she says, um, at least in this movie, he's not a great storyteller. He's careless about giving the audience its bearings. But De Palma is one of the few directors in the sound era to make a horror film that is so visually compelling that a viewer seems to have to enter a mythic night world. Wow. 
So Holly definitely had a thing for Brian. There is <laughs> no question. It's amazing. Her reviews of his stuff always flabbergast me. But um yeah, I mean I I can see what she's getting at in a way. Um I you know, I, I don't I, I think that the story, the basic just flat out storyline of the Fury is very pulp and very um comic booky a, a bit. It, it's just and it's it's episodic, it's very um you know, set, I don't think set PC. I mean, you can yeah. almost you can almost say that this is a uh, a Marvel mutant movie. There, there, these yeah. are these are mutants. That's yeah. why I mentioned X Men earlier. Yeah. I thought about the Claremont yeah. John Byrne run. Yeah, I, very very much in that genre, and um, and so you know it can be appreciated and enjoyed on that level. But I think it's it's just was so starkly different. Than Carrie, I just I just think people were I'm mean, you know Kale's was one of the few reviews that even took it seriously to be honest from what I recall, um, it just was kind of dismissed it it you know audiences just weren't prepared for what they were going to see and it makes a huge difference how a film is set up in people's minds but it's set up in critics' minds right um, that lesson when I I did have a job for few years in between my short film and getting my um my first feature off the ground because i had to have some kind of work and i needed to pay off the credit cards that had paid for my short film and so i was working in marketing for film companies and uh i i we released a film called the fourth man the paul verhoeven film oh okay we i we saw it at a film festival loved it we picked it up and uh we started having, um, you know, early press screenings for magazines that have like a three or four month lead time. And they, the critics were not getting the movie. And then all of a sudden, David Anson in Time Magazine wrote, uh, it, it showed at, one, at another festival or something, and he did like a festival roundup. And he flipped out on the, about the fourth man and called it a wickedly funny comedy. And we all, I just, it was like a light bulb going off. The critics that were seeing it did not understand that it was dark humor. They were taking it too seriously and not getting it. So I just emblazoned that quote on the top on the front cover of the press um, the, the press notes and the pre the uh, for all the press screenings. And from that moment on, <laughs> literally every review of the movie was ecstatic. And it just it, it just it allowed it, it gave permission for the critics to walk in and and smile at, at the dark humor of this film. And it changed everything. And I think that if the Fury had been more cleverly marketed or more honestly marketed as to what it was, that maybe audiences and critics would have gone in with a completely different mindset. But they were all going in expecting Carrie to. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just hope the podcast like this for someone who has gone through this entire podcast, spoiler filled podcast, if they're going to watch <laughs> this for the first time after this, we've properly framed the movie for them. So yeah, uh, Sam Irvin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, loved it. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Good to see you great. again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Thank you.